0: Hello and welcome to our continuing 2017 educational webinar series. I am Dr. Jill Brooks, Senior Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, a hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. Today, we are so pleased to have Robert Lyles of Lyles Parker and Paul Weidenfeld of Exclusion Screening presenting discounts and waivers. When are they permissible? When are they likely illegal? Mr. Lyles focuses his practice on healthcare fraud defense, internal audit investigations, compliance, and regulatory manners. Mr. Lyles has represented a wide variety of healthcare providers in administrative and civil proceedings and in connection with internal compliance reviews. After the passage of HIPAA in 1996, Robert served as the first national health care fraud coordinator for the Department of Justice, executive office for U.S. attorneys. In his capacity, he advised prosecutors around the country on civil and criminal health fraud statutes, schemes, investigative tools, privacy concerns, and compliance issues. He was instrumental in writing and implementing DOJ guidance on the judicious use of the False Claims Act. Since entering private practice, Robert has continued to build on his health care background and expertise and experience. He has represented home health, hospice, and other health care providers, durable equipment suppliers, and third-party billing companies around the country in connection with government investigations and overpayment audits by Medicare contractors and by special investigative units working for private payer plans. Robert currently serves as outside general counsel for the American Medical Billing Association and is recommended by numerous healthcare related associations to their members. Paul Weidenfeld is a former federal prosecutor and DOJ National Health Care Fraud Coordinator with a legal practice focused on the False Claims Act, civil and criminal health care fraud investigations. Also, Paul is the co-founder of Exclusion Screening, LLC. His experience includes extensive trial and appellate uh, advocacy in both federal and state courts, including approximately 50 trials and 25 appellate arguments and appearances during before the Supreme Court, the Federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Louisiana Supreme Court. Go ahead, Robert and Paul.
1: Well, thank you, Dr. Brooks. I appreciate it. Paul,
0: how
2: are you? Um, well, I'm doing all right. Thank you, Dr. Brooks, as well. Um, we're here, and uh, you know, every time I hear those those summaries, I'm more and more impressed with you, Robert. I have to say, you know, you're, you're one heck of a guy. So why don't you lead us off on this presentation? Well, what are we going to talk
1: about today? We're going to talk about waivers. and We're going to talk about copayments. We're going to talk about the the legality of of waiving uh, uh, deductibles. We're going to talk a little bit about gifts and things that doctors receive, and you know, all those
2: things. OIG or um, authorities look at it as potential kickbacks. That's right. That's so right. We think of them as gifts. We think of them as gratuities. It's just given back and forth. Mm-hmm. But others have different views of that. Don't that's they? right.
1: So, what we're going to discuss is we're going to discuss the, the underlying statutes that deal with those issues. We're going to talk about the anti kickback statute. We're going to talk about private payers. You know, do they have a place here where, when, when it comes to waivers, uh, safe harbors? Uh, the Stark statute, and finally, we're going to finish up with, you know, is it legal to provide free or discount care? That's something that I still get questions on, Paul. I know it's and, and you know, well, let's start here talking about the kickback statute. All right, so, Paul, you know, the anti-kickback statute is is one of I think the more interesting statutes that we deal with in healthcare. Part of the reason because it's a, it's as wide as it is long. This is why there is no doubt about it and 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 it, you know as we as the slide shows if you knowingly and willfully we're going to come back and talk about those words in just a minute but if you knowingly and willfully offer pay solicit or receive remuneration the, now remuneration Paul that's a funny word but it basically means anything of value
2: that's 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 exactly it it's just whatever value and we're going to talk about what may or may not be value later on but a discount a lease agreement, a, you know anything where one person is giving more than what would normally be viewed as a hand as a fifty-fifty proposition. That's right, uh, in cash or in kind, directly or indirectly.
1: Basically, if you're giving something of value in an effort to induce a referral of business that's reimbursed by Medicare
2: or Medicaid, and as we talk about later. It only has to. It doesn't have to be only for that purpose. It doesn't have to be simply and exclusively for the purpose of getting
1: uh, business. Right. That's Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, I'm trying to move this out of the way. There we go. Okay. All right. So, but uh, I, I I have to tell you there there really is something that we want to talk about. We just talked about a minute ago how the actual language of the statute that was out there said if you knowingly and willfully engage in this conduct. But the Affordable Care Act really kind of impacted the definition of the knowledge requirement and the intent requirement. Can you kind of discuss that with me? Because that's something that's really, I think, that it, it. in my opinion, what I tell our clients is, if you thought that the anti-kickback statute was broad before, well, now it's just like the Wild West.
2: So we'll have to step back for just, just a second and Think about the the anti kickback or the kick, anti kickback statute in healthcare prior to the Affordable Care Act. Yes. And at that and and so there were cases, there were kickback cases that were being brought by the government. And a defense that was successful was, well, I used to be in some other business. I was in the car business. I was in the you know r- automobile rental business. I was in whatever. And this is normal conduct in that business. And in fact. The giving of gifts, the you know, in return for business is, in fact, common—a uh, common practice in most every industry and every business. But big but capital B, capital U, capital T, in healthcare, it's not. You can't give to get healthcare business that's paid for right by a health federal or state healthcare program.
1: And that's the first
2: lesson of today, and
1: that is, conduct that's perfectly acceptable in any other line of work
2: is very likely to be illegal in healthcare. Exactly. So some guys, they were tried for a kickback because they paid for referrals and they said, but I didn't know that it was a violation of the, the health care, of the kickback statute, because this is what we did in all of our other business, in my other businesses. So that's the, that's the backdrop. So they created, they passed in the Affordable Care Act, they attempted to change this this standard and to say that well you don't have to know it's a violation of this kickback statute for it to be to for specifically to be a healthcare violation you just have to know that you're paying a kickback
1: so basically the requirement for actual knowledge which is a pretty pretty high standard when you think about it because you actually you actually have knowledge of what you're doing there That's no longer required. They've like blown
2: the definition of because knowledge is still in the statute. Well, so if you parse it out, I think that what they intended to say was, you knew that you were paying a kickback, but you didn't necessarily know that that kickback was a violation of the health care fraud statute. Now, I don't know how that really worked, but that's what they were trying to do. However, it
1: sounds like they've almost adopted kind of a knowledge standard like what we see in the False Claims Act, Paul, which is... Actual knowledge, reckless disregard, and deliberate ignorance.
2: See the, there's a big debate, and there's the case law is not out there yet on that, even though it was passed, you know, back in 2010. Because there are many people, the the defense bar will take the position that it's really no change because you had whether you, whether you you have to have intent. You, they haven't stripped that away. The only way you're going to have intent is if you violate the care statute. So, but they a- did strip away specific intent. To commit that crime, yes. So it's very confusing. And the bottom line is they have, it can be read, and most prosecutors read this as saying basically if you paid it and you knew you were paying it in return for business, that's enough for them.
1: That's it. That's exactly right. Now, it's important, and, and this is something I want to kind of point out to the folks on the phone. It's not merely... A situation we're talking about where it's illegal to provide kickbacks to, to uh, induce Medicare and Medicaid business. Many states out there, and I'm using Texas just as an example, has what's known as an any-payer statute. And essentially in Texas, if you provide something of value in order to induce services that are paid for by a private payer, it may not be a violation of the Federal Anti-Kickback Statute, but it's going to be a state
2: violation. Well, it's important to remember that health Healthcare Fraud Statute, as it's written, includes private payers. So it would be a 1347 violation. Exactly, it would be a federal criminal health care fraud violation, just not a Federal Anti-Kickback violation. Exactly. So when you in that context, the and the private payers um, you know and 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 in and the context of the private payers, let's as you well know, they are very aggressive in their own way, and they'll bring the cases to the state authorities,
1: right? They exactly will. Their SIUs, their Special Investigative Units, will go to the Department of Justice and say, hey, we think these folks are ripping us off. They're engaging in conduct that probably is a violation of, of the kickback statutes, and we, you know, that's a violation of on the federal side, 1347. But also,
2: government, if they're doing that to us, they're probably doing it to your payers, too. And if the federal government doesn't express an interest, and they always say that they're very busy, but anyway, they always say they're too busy, they'll take it over to the state authorities. And the Texas um, Fraud Control Unit is a very aggressive and active unit. It is. And many states have those all-payer statutes. So you have to be very careful.
1: And this is important because a lot of times the doctors, you know, they'll give you a hard time about... Uh, 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 wanting to waive claims, and we're going to talk about this in more, more detail, related to private payer plans, but it's, it's, it's just as, as problematic. Now, now, what does the AMA say there about the waiver of copayments? I mean, the fact is, for a long time now, they've been warning docs, you know, one of their ethical opinions was that if you waive copayments, it very well may be a problem. And it's a problem on two levels if you're talking about private payers. Number one, I have yet to see a contract that allows you to just waive the copayments and deductibles of your friends or the wife of a referral source or any, any other little category like that. So it's probably probably going to be a uh, contractual violation. Mm-hmm. Okay, And then it could be, if you're in a state that has an all-payer agreement… It could be a. Um, it, it could also be a
2: state violation or a 1347 federal violation. And, and it might be worthwhile to just take a moment, a few seconds, to remind people that there is a basis. There's a good basis for these vi- the, for the requirements to not waive copay. And that is that by waiving the copay, you you know you have an agreed upon pricing structure. And the copay is the part is supposed to create some level of disincentive to the individual. They want the patients to have some skin in the game. That's exactly right. And so by, you know, and and that, and we all know, you know, I go to a shopping cart, a shopping center someplace, and if you have to put a quarter in to get that uh, shopping cart out, and people, that simple, just that will make people really bring those things back and pay attention. You know, it, you don't have to be a lot to get people to feel like they've got skin in the game, and that's the importance of the copays. you got to think of it in that sense. Not in the sense of, oh, well, I'm doing them a favor. Uh, yeah, I'd
1: also like to point out though, um, and I'm not sure if we have a slide on on this or not. But just think does back, that matter? No, we're not really. <laughs> we don't follow the slides anyway. So you know, if you think back, we've got, we've got HIPAA with the privacy requirements. Now it's mandatory by law that you're supposed to have a, an effective compliance plan in place. You've got to be doing these security risk analyses. We've got all these unfunded mandates. Now, what this means is that the cost of doing business is continuing to go up, and it's not like reimbursements are going up. Reimbursements are going down. Now, the reason I'm going over this is, you know, I do a lot of work with billing companies. We're outside counsel for American Medical Billing Association, and I can tell you that the billing companies tell me that the margins are getting so tight that, frankly, doctors are making their profits off of the wave of off, off, off of the co-payments and the deductibles. They're, that's where they're making their, their real profit. You're not going to go out of business if, if you weren't to collect those, but you're not going to make any money. So from just from a practical standpoint, from a business standpoint, it's
2: just bad business to waive it too. In addition to being against the law, it's, it's what, 10%? It's, it's something like that? I mean, if you take a credit card, for instance and you know you, that's a pretty hefty thing it's more than that so uh, you're right that's an important thing to remember
1: Now we've talked about how broad the, the anti-kickback statute is but there are ways that Congress has kind of dealt with trying to deal with with that breadth
2: there are They're, they have these uh, they have safe harbors uh, but uh, safe harbors man that, that's a quagmire honestly
1: it is it is and, but and, but essentially what what Congress said was, you know, the anti kickback statute, we recognize that it really is broad, and that, in fact, it is so broad that it would probably uh, uh, adversely impact some legitimate business arrangements, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Even though this particular arrangement very well on its face will be a violation, if you have these safeguards in place, we will consider that to meet the requirements under a safe harbor, and we won't go after you for a violation of the anti kickback statute. So that's what a safe harbor is. Right. And its corollary on the stark side is an exception. All right. So that so, so you, you know, some of the safe harbors they have out there, the discount safe harbor, not something that most of our, our listeners are going to be involved in, probably. Uh, they're probably gonna be involved in, in the personal services and, and 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 a number of the other ones. But 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 so what talk to us about kickbacks, Kim? In what way? What well, the kickback? What, what's what? A kick, I mean, a while back we saw that case in Houston, where the DME company was paying the doctor two hundred and fifty dollars for every prescription for a wheelchair that, that she, uh, she prescribed. That's a pretty straight up kickback. Anybody can understand that, right? That's exactly right.
2: And and so they, you know, the 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 obvious one is you pay for a, a certificate of need. You pay so many dollars for a certificate of need. You pay so many dollars to allow you to get something. But those are obvious. And then there's the next step where they would say, well, I'm going to pay someone to be my medical director, right? Now that, so medical directorships, they've got all manner of rules on that because it was abused for a while. And you can't just throw money be, uh, without, there has to be an actual, that has to keep the time, it has to show fair, fair market value of the time and so forth. That's more of a disguised kickback. And then there are different ways. There are lease agreements as we've got up there, where you have a where you' where someone's paying, you know a third of what the fair market value of the lease is, and then they refer all of the business. Any there's the whole spectrum from direct cash to indirect payments. But you know, it's kind of like uh, Lewis Powell said when he was defining pornography, which is you know it when you see it. You know when you're given something, for no good reason except the referral of business. And that's the way most prosecutors look at it. That's right. And the problem is that even if we're faced with a situation
1: where a patient that's being referred, let's say that, that, that there really is a medical need, uh, so we get this referral that comes in, doctor evaluates the patient, it, that this patient definitely needed whatever services we end up providing. We document them properly, we code it properly, we bill it properly. Even though it was medically necessary, if we received that referral
2: through a kickback, it taints the whole coin. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things about the kickback statute, the way they interpret it, and I personally, I have to say that I find this interpretation offensive because I find it impossible really to apply. But this is the one, and this is the rule, and this is the way they apply it. And they say that if the remuneration, if there is one purpose, is to induce referrals. So that you, in other words, what they're saying is you, it can all look like a, a, an absolute um, appropriate relationship, and you can be paying, and it all looks correct, but if underlying it, is the fact that you know you're going to that doctor is going to end up send, that is going to send you more business or you're going to one way or the other you're going to send more the other way if that's one of the purposes if everything else is okay then that's a kickback well you in any relationship between two parties that are satisfied with the with the conduct of each other they're going to send things back and forth that's just, you guys have to be careful that according to the government's interpretation, they're going to view every aspect of it as being completely, has to be 50-50. Uh, now,
1: hang on for a minute, Paul. So you're saying, let's say that 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 I am a uh, general practitioner, and I really like this cardiologist. He does really good work. And any of my patients that have heart problems, if I send them all to that, that doctor, that's not illegal. No, of course not. Okay? Because I want my patients to get the best care. You and you think he's the best. That's right. But now, what if that doctor after a couple of years of this, you know, he's human and he's going to say, "I really appreciate the referrals you've been sending me and I want to say thank you." And he becomes a friend over time. Yeah. We add that. So he wants. So he gives you a birthday
2: gift, or he gives you bring something by for Christmas, or he says, "Why don't you come to the game with me? I got tickets to the Sugar Bowl. I got tickets to the, you know, or here hey, I got some extra uh, uh, concert tickets. Take your wife." Ah, it It's sticky. It does, and they're gonna, and they may look, they may, they may forget about the first four years. We've even seen them allege a kickback to a uh, to a non. Pay hey, basketball game. That is, it was a free entry, but you had a ticket for it to get a good seat or something. We've seen them use that.
1: We've had that case as where they were a bottle
2: of liquor that's right. was cited in a key ketan so, as an inducement, and the government alleged it. So, you know, it, over it. Those are those are very tricky. Now, personally, you know, when you become friends with somebody, you know, they you're allowed to have friends and you're allowed to have relationships, but it's sticky it, it does and it, it does it's it really does so you know? you got and, some examples up here some examples
1: uh, a dme company paying a surgeon $50,000 to serve as a consultant well um you know that that very well may be appropriate but it, it turns out that that consultant doctor also just happens to only use products made by that orthopedic device manufacturer What's it going to look like?
2: No, absolutely. And, you know, you've got to remember, <clears throat> one of the things about kickback cases is that they always they, they typically will prosecute the person giving, but not the one getting. And so that, that is often – Unless, my, of
1: course, you're in home health or hospice, in which case they're going after everybody.
2: Well, that's true. In home health or hospice they do. But, I, you know, the, the, in, I'm not saying that you should take them. <laughs> by any means, no.
1: Because there, there are two sides to every kickback.
2: Right. Yes. Absolutely. And so you're going to get caught up in it.
1: Now, this one, this is a really interesting one here. Uh, a physician provides discounted care to an uninsured patient. Now, so how could there possibly be a kickback there? Well, in this particular case, it turns out that this uninsured patient had a lot of family members covered by Medicare. The family thinks you're the best doctor in the world for taking care of their cousin. So now the and and you know it's a small community. Word gets around. Now the whole family comes to you, and they're all covered by Medicare.
2: And there's that there is that quote one purpose kind of test that one of the reasons you gave that discount was to, to get more family members. That's the part about it that I find no really no good
1: purpose. Yeah, no good D goes un, unpunished. That's right. right. You know so but. I, you know I think that would be a hard one. I think for the government to prove, but it, but you know, in a situation where if they could show that in fact, when you gave that discount, that you knew it was going to have that result, then you've got a problem. If, however, this was just a family that, that just you know they think the world of you, eh, you know, it's tight. Right. Okay. Business arrangements. I mean, the bottom line here, when it comes to the anti kickback statute, anytime you're going to enter into any type of business arrangement. Whether it's hiring a medical director, serving as a medical director, you're going to lease space, you're going to be a lessor, you're going to be a consultant for someone, uh, you're going to decide that, that these are, are, are the types of uh, 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 orthopedic devices that, that you're only going to prescribe, you know, back braces and the rest of it. You've got to be very careful. Every one of those arrangements needs to be carefully reviewed by your healthcare lawyers before you go into them. Because you know, as we said in the very beginning, regular business courtesies—things that you would do in any other industry—are very problematic in healthcare.
2: It uh, can be anyway. Can be. So look at the nature of the relationship, and and um, do you do they do you have business together already? Um, do the parties currently refer business to one another? You know, you're allowed to refer things to one another. In fact, when you go to your doctor or you go to your Whoever you're receiving a service from, it, whether it's your home health agency, you talk to, you ask them what doctor should I see. You go to the doctor, you ask them what home health agency should I go to. I mean, it, it so we're always in healthcare in the business of making referrals because whoever we whoever we serve is seeking them. Right? That makes it kind of problematic. And the and I think when you put all of these together. We could read them, but we don't do that normally. It, it, we're talking about arm's length, right? right? Isn't that really what we're saying? You yeah. want to
1: make sure that every business arrangement really, really has been assessed so that it, it's 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 reflective of you know fair market value, right? Okay, and it
2: it it's a reasonable commercial business decision. So, this is a useful checklist to make sure that you're, you know, as they say, checking all the boxes, and you've so helpfully put boxes there for us to check. That's (laughs) right. Okay. All right, so what about, now we've heard about professional
1: courtesy, we've been kind of dancing around it this whole time. Professional courtesy, Paul, you know, it's been around ever since there's been two doctors on the planet, we've had professional courtesy. Yeah. You know, and it's very common. You know, the wife of a referral source comes in, and you, and you say, ah, oh, just bill them
2: insurance only. So we both grew up in small towns, and in my town, it was like you, everybody knew the doctor, and the doctor, you know, it was like, he give them professional courtesy, you know, as you walked out the, uh, out the door, because that was just the way it was done, right? Right.
1: But that's a problem. You know, whether it's in, uh, assuming you're not even covered by Medicare or Medicaid, Chances are you're covered by a contract, and nowhere in your contract is it going to say that you can bill insurance only. The problem with billing insurance only, in addition to the other problems we've already talked about, is now you're making a representation on that $1,500. When you bill them insurance only and you don't disclose that you waived the copayment, you're making a representation. They're thinking they're only paying 80% of what's usual and customary. When in fact they're paying a hundred percent because you did not collect from the patient. Now, how are you submitting that fifteen hundred to them over the wires over the internet? So if you had an
2: aggressive prosecutor, that could actually be also a wire fraud count. Well, you know, when you and I were prosecuting these cases, no people would say, "Oh, I would never handle a uh, a you know professional courtesy case," but. I think that now they do handle them. That. And I and I think that, frankly, for the reasons that we talked about a little bit ago in terms of, you know, it makes sense, I think it's it it can be appropriate if you're always waving them and you're not really, because you have an agreement. This is what you're supposed to charge. This is the skin they're supposed to have. And it looks like, frankly, that you're doing it so that they'll come back. That's one of the reasons that you are waiving that is so that they'll like it and come back, right? Well,
1: we've talked about this as well. In a small town, if you waive that for one senior, as soon as she goes to church or she goes to to her seniors group and says, "Doctor Smith didn't make you pay that ten dollars," you th- they're all going to be coming to see you. Exactly. So you got to be careful. Word gets around. Okay, so you got to be very, very careful. Okay, um, you know, if you're going
2: now, does that mean that you can't write off? Or you can't waive no. copayments. You you can under certain circumstances. And what right? are
1: those circumstances?
2: Oh well, first of all, you help me out here. Robert. Inability to pay is but a big one. That's the main one, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. And, and I think in the very closest of your family, right? Well, uh, we're going to talk about
1: that, right? You're not. Well, you can't build Medicare for for. Uh, oh, that's right. you can't build Medicare for you your can't, family can't for bill anyway. It, period. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we're going to talk about that as well. But with the inability Oops. to pay, the problem is you just can't say, okay, if they say I'm broke, you say, okay, I accept that, we're going to waive it. You can't do that. You really have to have you know, bona fide, good faith efforts to
2: try to collect it. Well, so inability to pay, first you have to make an assessment whether there's an inability That's right, because there's two ways to do it. One would be to waive it up front. That's exactly right.
1: And to do that, we typically say, well, then you're going to have to fill out all these forms, Frankly, you need to bring in probably a tax return or two to show that you don't that. have the money. That's what I have my folks do. If they want us to wave it up front,
2: that's what we do. We establish inability to pay because we're going to have to explain that to the to the regulators if they show up. So what would make sense is to have some sort of form in your
1: office. But what can you rely on other than their word filling out a form other than if you have a
2: tax return? Then you've got something that actually shows what they're reporting. So if you want to wave it up front, my advice is you talk to someone like Robert who does this and he says, here's the form and here are the requirements. And right. you can take two out of these three or one out of these thieving, but have a do s don't don't do it on an ad hoc or one-off basis. Do have a regular policy
1: exactly. and procedure. Exactly. Now also every state, you know, most of the time what we do is we, we base it on if they want to do it up front, you know, every state has established what their poverty level is, and you can actually use that number
2: to help come up with this form. But what if they don't do that up front? Okay, so now, you, so now you're talking about the, you're sending out a bill and it's coming back unpaid, and That's you're right. sending out a second one, and when can you write it off? Well, obvious not obviously, but you must make a good-faith effort to collect. That's right. Now, a good-faith effort as far as I can tell, isn't just one, two, three, and we're gone. There is something more than sending out three in three bills, I think. Yeah, I
1: like to tell clients, you know, if they're going to do calls, that one call is fine, but document it, and then maybe try to do two real letters out there to try to collect it. What you can't do, though, is okay. Here comes the wife again of that referral source, okay? And we're not going to bill insurance only because Paul says we can't do that, okay? But we can't lean over to her and say, Martha, we're going to send you three letters, just ignore them, throw them in the trash. Yeah, that's not a good faith
2: effort to collect the money. No, it's not. It's not. And, you know, you've got to do, I don't know, and there is no magic to three, is there? No, it's a, that's been sort of kind of what has Industry evolved, custom. That's right, it has evolved. And, and I think, again, the big thing for some, the most important thing for this is to have a, an office policy and procedure that's been blessed by your counsel so that you're doing it the same way all the time and it's a fair way and it's not like for this person, oh, we just do send three letters and forget about it. For this person, we do it differently. You agree with that? I agree with that. Now, I'd like to point out too. You know, we had the special fraud alert that
1: came out in 1991. God, it makes me feel so old. The waiver of copayments is as big a problem today as it was then. It's still a real problem. It's a bigger problem, frankly, on the private payer side. But, but uh, because everybody's pretty much gotten the message about Medicare, you know. But, but I'll tell you though, you know, the privates are not going to sit still for this. They're doing a lot of uh, uh, their own audits, and they're coming in, and, and I've had clients within the last six months, when they come in, one of the things that they're going to ask for is they want to see a copy of your payment history for each one of these patients, and they want to see did you try to collect it, you know, because they're tired of paying 100% of what's being paid. That does not serve as a, as a disincentive to patients if it's insurance only.
2: Absolutely not.
1: Okay been a number of, of other uh, fraud alerts on on waivers no one came out in 94. There, there are exceptions you know un, un, uh, under managed care it's a whole different set of rules of course and there are exceptions for for, for um, uh, certain types of, of uh, uh, specific procedures. Uh, but the fact is you really do have a legal obligation to try to collect that money, whether it's Medicare or private. Okay. Now, what about the discounts? Are discounts okay under certain circumstances? OIG has said, "Well, we can kind of understand that. You know, uh, if someone wants to come in and, and pay up front, you know, we, we we can understand how that's got a certain value to it. You don't have to go out and try to collect it. You know, there's not the risk of not being able to collect it. Um, but." we just don't want this to result in costs being sh- shifted to medicare or medicaid and those types of things
2: you have to really be careful so it's, it's interesting that the private payers have to be notified if that's your policy mm-hmm. and procedure and so there is that you know as we've mentioned a couple of times there is that link that protection that you know a private pay you know Cigna or whatever United health that they are viewed from the Prosecutorial perspective as one of the gang as a as a as a healthcare program that requires protection and for,
1: I will tell you the system is it, taking a long time I mean I've been in healthcare working in on the on the provider side since eighty four and then since a prosecutor since ninety three and then now in private practice and you've been in healthcare I've known you since we both were young prosecutors
2: well when HIPAA was I was funded when HIPAA was passed I've been doing healthcare since ninety six so. Yeah.
1: So, um, and, you know, this is something that, that's always been a problem, but I can tell you in the beginning, there really wasn't that much coordination between the privates and the feds. Those days are over. Things are very coordinated now.
2: Between the privates and the feds and between the feds and the feds. That's true. You know, we used to be, and when we started the civil, you know, I would try and talk to a criminal prosecutor. I was doing civil health care, and... Uh, I would take a false claims act, and I'd say, "Here's fraud," and I would try to talk to a criminal prosecutor, and they just—they weren't even interested. They were like, "Oh, that's uh, that's an expert thing. That's a quality of care. I not I don't want to talk to you." And now, of course, they're hand in glove, aren't they?
1: They are. So here's some examples of of improper situations. You know, advertising. Believe it or not, I still see some weird advertising that goes on out there. Um, I actually went into a. Uh, on, this was a dental side. But I actually went into a dentist's office recently, and when you went in, they actually had a sign on the wall that says, we really appreciate our patients who send referrals. Send us a referral, and we'll give you $50. <laughs> a
2: big sign right when you walked in. Why not? If you can have a sign, you might as well make it That's dead. right. Well, and I've seen on late-night TV… As as you know, and you can't sleep, and whatever, and you're on late night TV, and someone goes on there's a power wheelchair commercial, and I've seen, and still to this day, I'll say, it, it won't cost you a dime out of pocket. We guarantee it. Just you know, if you come, you know, we'll take care of everything. We'll have the doctor, and mm-hmm. we'll do this, and all, you'll get it, and you won't have to pay a penny, right? Yep. I've yep. I've seen those, and they still exist. Don't they? Can't
1: do that. If you are going to write things off, like I indicated, you really do have to have bona fide uh, evaluations of of the patient's financial situation. You know, if you're going to try to write it off up front, you can't just, that's why, unfortunately, you can't really just let a patient fill out a form with no supporting documentation that verifies what they're telling you is correct.
2: You know, a big one here is having different rates for Medicare and non Medicare patients. I've, you've seen that. I've seen that. Where they say, like, who's your pay? You know, who's your payer? And it's like, oh well, that you know, we we don't do Medicare. You know, we have different rates. You can't do that. Can't do that. Okay. All right. But when can you do it? What are the rules for
1: when it's okay to do waivers? I mean, there's three basic requirements. You can't be part of income advertising. You know. Right. Uh, the person waiving the copayment. You know, uh, in other words, your practice—you don't do it on a regular basis. This is something infrequent, okay. And then the third one's the one is what we've been talking about, and that is you've made a good faith determination that either the patient can't pay it, okay, or if it's on—if the service is already provided,
2: you've made reasonable efforts to collect it. And and I think the big one is going to be actually number two. You know, the, the good faith determination, that's kind of tough if you've made some determination, but they're going to look at number two.
1: They are. They're
2: going What's to, your practice? That's exactly right. They're going to see, they're going to look and say, okay, you're telling me you always make this good faith, you always do this, and do that. Let me see mm-hmm. all of your, your collections for uh, your, your co-pay collections, mm-hmm. period. Yep. And that's where, you know, the, it'll start, a government investigation would start with a tip or something along those lines. And then they'll talk to some people and they'll have three or four people that they'll that they'll say, let me or ten or whatever, let me see the your collections history on these folk for their copays. And then they're gonna look and, and go from there. You know, is it routine?
1: Is it not? And that's right. And one of the things that they do, don't forget folks, probably the biggest investigative force they have out there are your patients. About every six months or so, they put a little piece of paper in with the EOBs that they send to these seniors. It says, hey, have you seen evidence of health care fraud? If do you want to make $1,000, call this number. And hotline
2: you know, tips, which is something that, we, that we're that we somewhat familiar with. They thousands
1: every month. All, all of the time. That's right. So these seniors out there, you've got someone that knows because they've heard it at the senior center, if you go see Dr. Smith, he won't make you pay that $10.
2: So. well, now you got a problem. And, and the other thing is data. you know, the collection of data so that it's not like you can fool them because they're gonna you know you've got hundreds of patients or whatever, and you've got a, a history of what you do, and what you say has to match what you actually do.
1: Mm-hmm. This is uh, there's another AMA rule here on professional courtesy. He says the same thing. You have to understand that if you waive co-payments, especially when you're treating fellow physicians and their families, it could be a real problem. You've got to be careful. okay? And you've got to let your docs know. I mean, your docs really do it, it, I hate to say this, but if left to their own devices, they're going, I mean, they're doctors. They're very good at what they do. We can't do what they do. But they're human too. And when a friend comes in or a patient that they really have taken a kind of a liking to, it's not at all common for them to say, you know what, just build an in insurance on Right. You've got to educate your doctors that, that, as nice as they are, it's a regulatory risk. And frankly, in the long run, it's a
2: financial risk for the practice. And I think that, you know, at this point, people are used to having uh, conduct governed by regulations that they don't like. And people. The, the gut reaction to the inability to waive uh, copays is, we don't like that, that doesn't seem right. We ought to be able to waive them if you want. But at this point, there are a lot of regulations and people are used to it. So if you explain, if you if you train your folk to explain, look, we'd love to waive copays, but we just can't. We're just not allowed to do that. People are kind of savvy and they're used to hearing the explanation and healthcare, we're just not allowed to do that, and I and they accept that.
1: And all you have to tell them is, if it's Medicare, I'm sorry, it's actually against the law. Right. Okay. Now, if it's private pay, it's not allowed
2: under our contract. Right. And you so, tell them the truth. And people, right. And I, and I think that you know we're really sorry, and that's the way. And, and people are willing to accept that. I think at this time.
1: That's right. But then when somebody comes in and they really do have a financial need. Or once they've got the service and they leave and they just don't have the money to pay you, it doesn't mean that you got to hound them forever. That's right. It doesn't mean you have to spend $500 to chase $25 it's owed. You know, you make these good faith efforts to collect, and then you can write it off. There it is. That's it. Now, does that mean you can't give free care? This is a big issue. You know, this is something that I remember when this actually came up. It was mostly on the hospital side, but, but – um, uh, this, this this whole free care something or this whole free care issue really came up because there were some folks in, it was around two thousand four where where um, they were so concerned you know OIG had had really drilled it into everybody's head you cannot waive copayments you can't that they thought you could never waive them so they actually had to come out and issue specific guidance saying wait a minute we're not saying that if people are uninsured or underinsured okay. Yes, you can provide free care. You can give discount care. Even if they have Medicare, you can waive the copayment, but you have to show either a financial inability to pay or that you made good-faith efforts to collect the money if they didn't pay at the time of service. Pretty easy rule. Seems to be. Okay. Let's kind of shift gears for a little bit. Let's talk about Stark. Now, what is Stark?
2: That's your favorite statute. Not my favorite statute. I don't understand. I don't understand Stark. I don't know. How anybody can understand. Stark.
1: Well, there's a lot to it, but essentially, under Stark, it's against the law. But the best way to really kind of describe when it first came out, it came out in the context of laboratories, and what Congress was concerned about is they were very concerned about doctors who had an ownership interest in a laboratory and they would have patients come in, and then they would send their patients to their lab okay, for services, and they were afraid of overutilization.
2: And in, fact, and in fact, there was overutilization, but the overutilization, as it turns out, with a historical perspective in those cases, the overutilization was not caused by the doctors. They thought that they were just ordering certain tests. But the labs themselves were, were creating... Forms that were, that essentially uh, determined overutilization. So there was overutilization. The doctors didn't cause it, but the snowball effect of that was that they didn't want doctors to make referrals to to something that they owned, that they had a financial stake in. That's the basic concept. Now that's kind of grown
1: like a lot. Uh, and, it, you know, the, the language is if, if the doctor has a financial arrangement. Well, that doesn't even mean that you have to have an ownership interest. You can have a financial arrangement just by being a medical director. You can have a financial arrangement just by receiving referrals and things back and forth. Plus, it's not just limited to labs anymore, is it?
2: No, it's 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 um, all designated health services. That's That's right. And so what happens is that any arrangement, that any, you know, that any – that any referral by a physician to anything for which he may gain as a result of that is problematic it, with the exception of how many? What are like 30 exceptions or something mm-hmm. something crazy like that? Uh, on an editorial basis, I'm just going to throw in my two cents, which is that it takes physicians out of, in many cases, the, finan- the financial aspects of medicine. And I don't think in the long run that's a good thing.
1: Uh, well, and my editorial comments, they, the government really doesn't like doctors who are entrepreneurs, right?
2: And I think that, and would both of us agree. Uh, and it'd be interesting to have a panel of someone who disagrees with that. But both of us agree that that that's a, that's not a good idea because doctors know healthcare better than anybody else. That's
1: exactly right. But we'll now right. the interesting thing about this, and this is this is is going to point out one of the the dichotomies of of the whole system. You know, here under Stark under certain circumstances you can provide professional courtesy there's an exception that allows you to extend professional courtesy to a physician members of the physician's immediate family or members of the physician's office staff as long as certain conditions are met but i want to point this out and this is the same with Stark you know uh, under several levels there's also a you know there's also a requirement that people get mixed up all the time under Stark you can receive in 2017 up to $398 in non uh, uh, non-monetary compensation, right. okay. But here's the rub: just because it meets Stark, does not mean that it doesn't, or or, or that you get a waiver on the anti kickback statute.
2: That's exactly right. And it's a common it's a common misunderstanding. But there are no exceptions to the kickback statute except the few that we've talked about. Right. Whereas, so all of these safe harbors in Stark and all of these exceptions. They don't apply to the kickback statute, although, you know, he... it's a good argument, but it's not going
1: to. It's not going to. At the end of the day, you still have to. That's right. And and I will tell you, you know, I've had so many clients that said, oh, but we made sure we checked with our lawyer and it met the requirements under START. And I tell them, that's great. Did they also run the traps under the anti kickback statute and under the False Claims Act? Because that's what you have to do. You have to look at all three of those before you can determine if certain conduct. Is really permissible.
2: Okay, now what are CMPS? So civil money penalties are, are of course, penalties for violations of any administrative act, essentially. Of which there, so there is the a kickback statute, which is a criminal violation, but there's also a violation. It can also be a civil money penalty violation. Isn't that right?
1: That's right. And then of course you can't. That's one of many types of CMPS. Uh, that can be assessed through through uh, OIG as well, right? You know, so there are a, a number of ways that they can go after you. There. Uh, let's talk about this. You we kind of raised this before. Taking care of your own family members. So, you're a doctor, and uh, you're, gosh, getting be close to our age, I guess. And your wife comes in, <laughs> an immediate family member, and and she's under Medicare, and you want to take care of her. Can
2: you bill Medicare? Nope. So what are what can you your husbands and wives, you know, children? I guess you know it's pretty broad.
1: Father in law, mother in law. Essentially, what the government says is, look, if you've got this familial relationship with somebody that normally in real life you give them free care,
2: you can't build Medicare. You know, and and it seems to me that. For at some level, that makes sense, but but frankly, for it, it extends out pretty far. I'm not so sure that uh, I know doctors who would necessarily give their brother-in-law and their sister-in-law free care. Well,
1: you know, in, but
2: in fact, there's even
1: there's even a, uh, a, a an exception there, or not an exception. They've included domestic domestic employees, you know, and other and others who live together as part of the single family unit. Now that's broad. There it is. So, you know, and we've actually had cases where part of the allegations for the overpayment were because he was, you know, the doctor was treating family members and then turning around and billing Medicare. Okay? Now, you know, there are also uh, group practice issues out there uh, that you have to watch out for. what about gifts? Let's talk about gifts for a minute. We talked to him earlier about that 398. Under Stark, now this is so confusing because under Stark it says that I can get up that I can give a, a doctor up to $398 in non monetary compensation, okay? And it won't be a violation. So we just got through saying how, you know, I'm I'm the uh, uh, general practice doc. I send it I send referrals to the cardiologist all the time. Now, after a couple of years, he sends me something back really nice because he figures it's safe under Stark,
2: I can give up to $398. So, and, and the reason, and, and there is a sense, there is a thing that makes sense out of this if you think about it. So, Stark is to prohibit financial, uh, someone from a physician to have financial relationships with, you know, to prohibit them from, from gaining from their referrals, from self
1: referrals. Overutilization. Overutilization,
2: from self referrals to themselves. Kickback is referral of business. So one, you're trying to prohibit you know, self, you know, referring to yourself, and that's where, the, that's where the Stark rules come in. The other is having people refer to you. So it's, it's the inverse of each other. And so it makes sense that the rules would be different. However, because Stark and Kickback often get conflated, that's the that's the problem. Well, let me ask you, Paul. What is the minimum you can
1: get under the anti kickback
2: statute? Well, there is no minimum. There is no. There is no. I mean, there's no maximum. There's no minimum. You just it's it's just anything a, of value, any remuneration, anything of value where one purpose
1: is a referral of business. That's right. That's, and that's what makes it so tough because, you know, so many folks on the phone. I'm sure that your practice has received a nice fruit basket at Christmas from someone. Now, absolutely. Do we know? I, I don't personally know of any prosecutors who would go after you or go after the cinder of the fruit basket for a kickback. But from a pure technical standpoint, is that a violation? And what about the lunches?
2: You know, the lunches that, that, are
1: very interesting. We're going to get into those now. Yeah, let's talk about lunches for a second here. Well, you know, before we get to lunches, okay. well, let's talk about beneficiaries. What about patients? Can you give something to patients? You know. And this, once again, this is what I mean by by you know one rule says one thing, but something, but the anti-kickback says something else. Technically, under the anti-kickback statute, you can't give something of value to a patient to induce that patient to come to you because you would then be billing the Medicare system, right. and you provided an, an illegal inducement. Well, if you remember, back in 2002, OIG said – I can't remember what happened last August. I'm not sure August 2002. Well, at that point, they said, you know what? We could see that sometimes it is appropriate to give a patient something of value, uh, but we're going to say that you can't do more than, it can't have a value more than $10, and you can't give them uh, anything more than $50 total over a year. Now, this is fine if you're saying you want to pass from this CMP authority that OIG has,
2: but this doesn't change the statute, does it? No, but I don't, you know, I mean, as a practical matter, if you, what, what's $10? Is that like a, a thing for McNuggets or something? Okay. I mean,
1: All right. You want to take that position. What then if I put up on the web, uh, uh, patients? we're going to give you $10 cash for
2: the first five visits that you give us each year. Gee, I wonder. That does sound pretty bad. And so, again, you know, they it's sort of well, cash wouldn't work of course because you can't give cash, but you can give something of value it 10 dollars. It would obviously be problematic. It would be. And would and be. so, you know, what you have to think of is is it is it on a one-on-one, is it on an on you go basis, like one at a time, but if you start advertising it or if you did it for everybody, right, right. You know, that you know, oh we automatically get when someone comes in, a new patient here's a ten dollar gift basket. That's right. We automatic and Then and on the fifth visit, you get another one.
1: That's right. That that would be big. Oh, it's your new year. We give you another one. Well, last December, OIG actually raised the amount, so now it's $15 up to $75 a year. But the problem that Paul and I have with this is: okay, it would get you a pass from OIG. Okay? And they have a lot of authority. They're the ones that make exclusion decisions. They're the ones that have CMP authority. But if you're investigated for anything else from DOJ, I can pretty much guarantee you that, that they're not just going to pass over this and ignore it. They're going to think that this is part of a pattern or practice of conduct.
2: And I'm can also i also reasonably certain that, although they have that for their, their civil money penalty authority, for their administrative authority, that if they were to find that uh, you were routinely First visit, everybody always got a fifteen dollar basket. gift basket, Gift right. Right? basket, or whatever. Whatever, and that they, and that on their third visit, they always got, and that there was something that in writing that said we give, you know, to show our appreciations. On the fifth visit, the third visit, you always get. The OIG would, you know, they do a lot of the investigating on false claims act cases and, and on kickback cases. They would not give a pass to that kind. Not gonna fly. Not gonna fly all right
1: now let's talk we're running out of time real quick let's go to your point uh, about the lunches that's a big deal people that come in and they drop off lunch okay now let me ask you something paul is that okay a pharma rep comes in and, and brings a bunch of sandwiches or brings a bunch of barbecue and says hey good to see y'all tell dr smith i said hi
2: well so pharma had a code that put a value that that you could do it if it was for the benefit of patients and stuff but you know frankly that's something that they used to do a lot, but don't I don't see it as much anymore. don't see it as much because yeah. if, you know, if you're doing it on an right, ongoing basis, if there's an educational component, if there's some benefit to it, but just dropping off lunch, every, you know, the last Friday of every month, that was the kind of thing that they would do. You know, that's, uh, frankly, you know, and – they come in, they drop off lunch, and they always would drop off the samples with it, and it would influence decision-making yep. as a practical matter. It,
1: one time, this is a true story, I, I
2: was giving a presentation in front
1: of an association, and I was talking about how if they were coming in and dropping off a uh, chicken that, and, and then leaving, that's unfortunately, that's a violation, that's probably an inducement. And I had a nice lady stand up, she said, my husband is a physician, and are you suggesting that my husband's integrity could be bought for a bucket of chicken?" And I told her, no ma'am, I'm not suggesting it, but obviously the former rep is, because he's the one dropping off the bucket of chicken. Nobody just shows up at my house for no reason and knocks on my door and gives me a bucket of chicken. The only reason they bring the food is to curry favor with staff and the doctor.
2: So essentially, and, you know, that's a problem. And with that bucket of chicken, as I said, often would come the the, the uh-huh. educational material yeah. for their new products right. and the samples for the stuff that's not, you know, that's still um, that they can still charge the high rates for. I mean, you know, it didn't just come with a bucket of chicken. It came with the chicken. It came with the samples. It came with the literature. And it came with the and they keep track. By the way. You know, they the pharma folks kept track of who was referring it. All right,
1: now let's talk about when it's pr- when it's probably okay, though. You know, let's say you've got a a uh, the rep for Remicade, and they go in with and they want to they want to uh, go over the new contraindications that they've identified for folks that have to sit there at the rheumatologist's office when they're getting infusions. And they need to they need to make sure that all the nursing staff knows about these contraindications. And they also want to know, or they also want the nursing and the doctors to know that there are new labeled uses that have been approved. Right. Right. You know, well the only time that they could actually do that kind of education is probably when the office shuts down for an hour at lunch. So, essentially, the government has taken the position they have still haven't changed the law, but they have taken the position that if it's something modest and it's being provided on site. And it's coupled with a bona fide educational session.
2: They'll turn a blind eye, and the, of course. So, but what happens is that the offices don't want de- to. They see this is why it. Why we know that it worked as a as at least some level of an inducement because the offices were take the position. I think most of the times we don't want to waste that hour. Jim, it's not worth it for us to get a bucket of chicken to have to sit there. For an hour. So if it's if you know if they'll agree to listen to it, then it makes sense. That's right. But you can't just drop off food. You can't just drop off food, and it's hard to set those things up. And the worst
1: practice I've ever seen was one practice where they actually kept a, a book up on the counter for the reps to come in, and they would sign up for weeks in advance about what they were going to bring for lunch. Right.
2: Well, that was the, that was a common practice ten years ago. Yeah,
1: well, th- these days that would be a common practice that could end up uh, putting everybody in jail. And problematic. All right. Free care, discounted care. We talked about that. The two thousand and four guidance. Uh, we think that that uh, that that really kind of provides you the cover you need. Okay. Uh, well, we're, our hour is up, but we still have some questions. I think. What's going? Yes. What about those, Jill?
0: We have quite a number of questions so we'll address as many as we can and otherwise we'll um, address those offline. Uh, If a patient has a private pay insurance and they are having a procedure that is typically considered cosmetic, can we have them sign a waiver stating they have been made Aware where the insurance does not typically pay, so we will provide a discounted fee. This will not be billed to the insurance and payment is due at time of service. And then there's this two part to this question, can the amount we quote the patient be different than the amount we bill the insurance or does it have to be the same charge?
1: Okay, so basically you're saying, if someone's coming in for a non-covered service, can we have signed the private payer version of an ABN?
2: Correct. Yeah. But what was the second
1: half of the question? The second question was, Essentially, if they're paying, if, if it's a cash pay versus uh, insurance pay, uh, can we give them a discount? Right. Well, you know, it's kind of hard to say because there won't be an insurance pay because it's not a covered service. Right. You know, so it, it, I'm not sure how it would be, how it would be, how you would, uh, um, you know, compare that to what the the, the price would be. Uh, but I think that if you, yeah, if you have someone coming in for a non-covered service and they're going to pay cash whatever the market stands i think you're probably okay uh, but i think that you should in fact if they have insurance and you know it's not going to be a covered service you actually yeah you need to be very careful and make sure that they know your insurance is not going to be covering this
2: but i i, I would think and and I, I don't know but i would think that that you would often have to check your contract with other carriers because you might have a provision in the contract with with a different carrier like a most favored nation provision exactly that says that, uh, that our folks will get the cheapest price no matter what. Or right? Yeah. Or you that's know, right. So you'd have to be careful about that. So you might be undercutting yourself. They're saying, well, wait a minute, we're paying five hundred dollars for this service, but you're, you know, you're selling it to other to folks without it for two fifty.
1: I'll tell you though, if in fact it is covered by another payer and you're a participating provider in that payer, probably, you know, the the re- reimbursement going to be pretty low and and. It might be fun, but you yeah. just you would just want to check. You got to be careful. But that but you can run across you can run into problems the other way too. And that is where where uh, let's say they do have another contract, and under that contract they get paid five hundred bucks. But the cash price for this on the street is three thousand. Right. You know. Well, you got to be very careful now when you start trying to, to charge patients three thousand cash for something that you would normally be reimbursed five hundred for all your payers.
0: Okay. Next is a we multi. We made that complicated, didn't we? <laughs> I think you clarified it. Simple
2: um, questions, complicated answers.
0: All right, multi-part question. Are we allowed to provide free services, no copay, no insurance, no self-pay, et cetera, to whomever we choose? Uh, I understand how continuous free services provided to a physician and their family can be preserved as a kickback, but what about a friend with no referral capability medical industry ties? For example, my friend who owns a car repair shop gives me free services. How would this be any different?"
1: So basically, you want to have a
2: barter system. Well. They're not – that maybe, but that's not – the question isn't predicated upon barter. The question – is it? Or is the question predicated on barter, or is the question simply, well, can I just do this for whatever reason?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's the latter, yeah.
2: The latter. So they're saying, can I can I just decide to give people free services?
0: I, all right. Well, you know See, what – yeah. The question is based on friendship or whatever reason. Yeah,
2: so that's just – Can I just decide, for whatever reason, not not to charge somebody? Correct. I think you can, as long as
1: it's not going to result in any type of an inducement that's going to result in a a private payer or government business. Uh, But I think you're going down the wrong road if you do that. Because as soon as you start, I mean, you've got a policy out there for when you provide free and discount services that you apply for folks that that have financial need. And when you start deciding that for this particular class of folks, you're not going to even follow your own policy,
2: I think that's a bad idea. And I think it would be particularly dangerous if you're doing it for the, the end part of that question, which was the barter part. Yeah. So in other words, because... If if you're doing it for if if you're hoping that you know you're doing it for the guy who fixes your car so that he'll give you a break when he fixes your car and then part of, you know one purpose is going to be wanting to like you and maybe he's going to send others because you guys have a relationship I I think that that would be um, uh, you know I mean if he did it now and again I don't know I don't I don't know but the bottom
1: line is it's not against the law for a doctor to give free services right.
2: But it's but if you're doing it on the basis of because you're doing it for people who have doing things for you, then it starts. I don't know. I don't know. I'd, be, I'd, I'd talk to a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: so kind of along the same lines, can you offer the patient a family and friends gift care for other patient referral non-Medicare if you keep it under $15 uh, a unit or up to $75 a year?
1: Oh, that's a tough one. Well, yeah, I think you can do that if you want, if you, uh, it would keep you, all right, let's say it's not Medicare and Medicaid, but they're still going to refer other people. First of all, if it's not Medicare and Medicaid, that whole 10 and $15 thing doesn't even apply, okay, because that's for federal programs. Uh, but when they send these other people in there, they're going to be covered by private payers. And, you know, if your state is one of these states that has an all-payer statute, that's a state violation. It could also be, potentially, you know, a kickback to get private payer work, it could also be possibly a 1347
2: violation. Well, they might also send people who are covered by a federal health care plan.
1: And there are a lot of programs out there that you don't know that they're federal and, until they get into it. Because, you know, it, it could be FEHBP, where, the, where they work for some obscure federal agency. They have
2: federal insurance. One of the kids could be covered by chips. One of the, the, the some uh, one of the friends might have Medicaid coverage. You don't. Uh, that's it. can't
1: Please just stay away from that kind of conduct.
0: Okay. What are the guidelines for physicians providing care for their staff and not billing insurance or collecting copays, even if it's just writing a prescription for something?
1: Well, okay. Well, there is an exception, of course, under Stark, for, for uh, collecting uh, uh, the copays uh, for a member of your staff. Um, if you're not going to bill insurance at all, So once again, it comes out to just
2: free care? Correct. So are are we talking about real care, or are we talking about just like writing prescriptions? They see them, they listen to their chest, and they write prescriptions.
0: I think they're referring to both, but saying specifically, even if it's just writing a prescription.
2: So I think that writing a prescription is a lot different than treating them, because I I suspect that they might – Spend three minutes with them, or five minutes listening to their chest, or doing, or running some tests. But once they start doing any tests, like lab work, or they start actually seeing that, you know, they have to admit them and do a procedure. I said they're not going to provide that for free. So, you know, for me, it's is there. I think there's a difference between a de minimis sort of, you know, I see you, I write a script. I send you on your way versus I'm actually treating you affirmatively.
1: We've actually had a couple cases, too, where they were providing free services for staff. And unfortunately, when they did that, they would document the visit, but they didn't do a good job with it. They didn't document like they would if it was someone from off the street. And, you know, now you've got this person then that, as you say, what if they have to have lab work? What What if they have to have ancillary tests? They go out and they get these things. Well, now these days, of course, what's happening when they're providing these? (laughs) In order for the labs to be paid, and and we actually know of cases right now where actual pharmacies are calling up our clients saying, we want to see all the supporting documentation before we fill this prescription for opioids. That's how tough it's gotten. So my point is you, you really shouldn't be making these special rules, in my opinion, for employees. If they have insurance, you need to bill insurance.
2: And if you again from my perspective, if you're writing a prescription, if you're just seeing him, I know that that's a common practice, but the doctor's gotta be careful if he's doing that, because these days, I mean, you're trusting this employee, but so if you write a prescription for him and you don't have a good medical record, then you're you're putting yourself at risk if something bad happens, the employee's gonna come back at you. So yeah. one,
1: one way to really deal with it though, if you wanted to be transparent about it. If your employees have insurance and you want to give them free care, contact the payer and say, look, I'm not going to charge you. I'm not going to charge them. I just want to put you on notice. You don't have a problem with that, right? Then at least you've done that. You've been transparent about it.
0: Okay. Uh, How is CVS able to advertise no-cost flu vaccinations?
1: Well, you know, there was that whole cat- – well, there are some categories of, of services where the government has essentially kind of carved out a uh, an exception, like like for kidney transplants and things like that when it comes to co-payments. It, I don't know about I, – I know, I know the advertisement you're talking about. It could be that there's some public health reason why they've just said we're not – you know, we really – it's in the public's interest to make sure everybody is vaccinated for the flu, uh, so we're not going to require you to collect that.
2: That would be my guess. I, I, you know, I haven't seen it, but there is a, there's an obvious public interest in it, and so um, they're not the only ones that. Have no, them.
1: Walgreens does the same. They thing.
2: All, so they're all advertising. They
0: all do the same thing. So they've got to have some kind of
2: cover.
1: I've never researched that issue, but that's what I would guess.
0: Okay, well we do have a few more questions but I think we'll answer those offline in lieu of the time. Uh, Please use their contact information if you want to put that back on the screen uh, Robert Uh, For any questions or if you send them to us, I will go ahead and forward them on to him. Uh, If you can register uh, for future webinars uh, or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at 1sthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you again for joining us and have a wonderful day. Thank you.